Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and this week's guest is Professor Sophie Scott. Sophie is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at University College London and an award-winning lecturer. Her TED Talk, Why We Laugh, has been watched over five million times and her brilliant book, The Brain, is out now. It features ten essays covering how brains have evolved with time, their composition and chemistry, and how they interact with the world around us. Sophie loves brains, and hers is stuffed full of mind-blowing facts about what she calls one of the most miraculous structures in the known universe. In this enjoyable conversation, Sophie lifts the lid on our least understood organ and shares some brain health hacks. Without further preamble, here's that conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I have to confess that as a layman, I feel utterly intimidated by interviewing somebody who knows so much about something I know absolutely nothing. I mean, you've described the human brain as one of the most miraculous structures in the known universe. Can you give me a sense of scale? So in your brain, you've got about 86 billion brain cells, those are neurons, You've also got about 85 billion cells that are there just to support the neurons because neurons are they're very, very specialised, very strange cells. They require, a bit like a racehorse, they require very different standards of care. And it's incredibly energetically expensive. So your brain only weighs about 1% to 2% of your whole body weight, but it's using about 20% of the available oxygen in your blood at any point in time. That's why you're deprived of oxygen the first thing to really suffer is your brain. Your heart and your liver follow very swiftly afterwards. The brain, the heart and the liver are the parts of the body that are really, really expensive in terms of energy consumption. And the brain is expensive, not because it's working all the time, like physically, like the heart and the liver are doing. What your brain is doing is it's spending a lot of energy just being ready to work, just being ready to fire. It's, you don't have to get your brain up to speed. It is always ready to go. But if ordinary humans really knew all this, 
They'd be wearing crash helmets all the time. Well, you do think it's extraordinary, isn't it? What we do and we don't worry about in terms of our health. The things that you've, <laughs> I can't bear going out on the streets and seeing people wearing, well, rather not riding scooters and bikes and not wearing helmets. <laughs> it's just like, don't do this, don't do this. Mm. And, you, and you can make big changes. So Italy used to be the closed head injury capital of the world because there were so many people riding mopeds and you did not need to wear a helmet, so nobody did. And there's a reason why Italy has really led the world in studying the behavioural effects and cognitive effects of brain injury was because of this so many, particularly young men, having these horrible life-changing accidents if they survived them. And they brought in a law that made you have to wear helmets. They brought this in about 20 years ago. And since then, although the number of accidents haven't changed, the number of head injuries has plummeted. So you, you can do things, you can improve things. That's fascinating. And real evidence. Yes, real, exactly. Real evidence. It really makes a difference. A big part of your career has been communication. Your new book, The Brain, is a short and accessible read. You reach non-scientists on the radio and in podcasts. Your TED Talks have been watched by millions. Do you enjoy blowing people's minds or seeing the penny drop when you break down a complex idea? I think one of the things I've always enjoyed is a chance to discuss my research with people, particularly people who don't even necessarily think that it's going to be interesting, because I find it fascinating and I find it really pleasing if other people find it fascinating too, and I want them to. So I kind of want them to go on a journey with me to understand why I find this stuff the most amazing area to research. And the worst thing that can happen, and it has happened to me, I have given talks where this has happened, if you have the audience sitting there looking at you in horror and dismay as they don't follow a single thing that you've said, is excruciatingly painful. So I want that to never happen to me again. I want everybody to be with me. I, want, I don't want to lose anyone. Well, you've obviously cured yourself because um, I've followed everything you've said so far. Let's quit while we're ahead. The first chapter of your book opens with an immediate mind-blowing fact. You're born with the brain you'll have for life. Tell me more. It is extraordinary, isn't it? So the whole rest of your body actually renews continuously. The cells in your body are always on this cycle of life and death. And some of them have a really quick turnaround. So cells that take a lot of work, like the cells on the lining of your mouth and your gut, they're renewed every few days. And you get new red blood cells sort of about every four months. You get a new skeleton about every 10 years. But there are some cells in your body that you are born with and which never renew. And they're the cells in the lens of your eye. They are the cells in your ear that actually transmit to the auditory nerve and get messages up to your brain. If you're female, your egg cells, you're born with those and you, you don't grow new ones. And for everybody, every single neuron that you have inside your brain, you're born with. And that's really extraordinary. It means in development, in utero, you are growing every single one of those brain cells. And then what you see over the rest of your life is that same brain growing and changing, but not fundamentally growing new bits. When we learn something, we learn it by the existing brain cells remodeling rather than something else growing in the brain. There is one exception to this that I'm happy to take questions about, but the vast majority of brain cells that you have, you were born with them. Well, otherwise your head would explode. That is a very good point. One of the things that's interesting about the evolution of the human brain is in fact how we've managed to fit more and more brain in without having to have impossibly massive, unfeasibly large heads. There's a common belief that the adult brain is one in decline and a young brain is more suited to learning. But one very heartening takeaway from your book is that the adult brain is a work in progress, which I find hard to believe. Am I still 
very capable of learning a new language, for example. There is, as far as we can see, no known limit on the number of languages a human can learn to speak. It's the norm, actually, around the world to speak multiple languages. You are going to be able to learn a new language. The issue is time. Mm, That's mm. the main limit on most of what we're doing. But it's certainly, if you take a step back, you obviously have massive rates of change in your brain physically growing from when you were a baby through to child, through to an adolescent, through to an early adult. That's when you get very, very swift changes and structural changes as well as what you're learning. And you are good at learning at that age, but of course you're not doing much else. You're spending most of your time learning. And then the adult brain doesn't just sort of sit there and then start to fall to pieces as we get old. It is continuously growing and changing because everything you learn, everything you know, everything you experience is recorded in your brain. What you encode, what, who you are, who you feel like, what you know about your life, that's all reflecting changes in your brain. So that's... There isn't any other way of getting information in. It's all through this continuous process of learning. And there is some interesting individual variation. If you take it down to any one task, so with languages, some people are better than others. Everyone can do it, but some people are better. Music, some people are better than others, but everyone can do it. But the general picture is that time is the limitation. If you have time, you will not be as fast as you were when you were a child, but you will still be able to learn something. And that seems to be because of this continual pattern of, of change and regrowth in the connections in the brain. That goes on for your whole life. And interestingly, the pattern of connections that you develop does seem to, in a very general sense, give you some protection as well. So the more that you do give the opportunity to your brain to learn things, for you to learn things, it's buying you some protection against the effects of things like brain injury and stroke. But in everything you've said so far, you've not distinguished between men and women. Mm. Are we exactly the same brain-wise? I mean, in terms of potential and capacity? Everything I've said here affects all humans. Whether you're male or female, it's absolutely the same. There is one really big difference between male brains and female brains, which is size. So male brains are larger than female brains. And interestingly, they remain larger even if you control for body size because you could just say, well, men are taller. Everything's bigger. Their hands are bigger. So even if you control for that, there is a, a slightly greater brain volume in males than females. The flip side of this is if you look in female brains, female brains have got a greater proportion of what's called grey matter, and that's where the cell bodies sit in your brain. So there's something driving the difference between the size of male and female brains that isn't reflected, that seems to have the same total amount of grey matter. So you're not seeing brains that have overall different capacities, as far as we can see it. There are small differences on certain tests, but overall you do not find the same big differences in cognitive abilities between men and females as you do, say, in height or voices or other things that are really big physical differences between male and female bodies. So there are anatomic, this big anatomical difference, relatively big, which we still don't really understand. And it's expensive for men to have these bigger brains. So there, there must be some reason for it. I sometimes wonder if it's the display thing. Or it's to do with the fact that male voices are deeper and larger and maybe a big head helps you resonate that. We, but we, the bottom line is we don't know. Or maybe <laughs> women are more efficient at uh, processing. Well, you could think of the female smaller brain as, as a more efficient one, but, it's, but they're still more expensive for men, so there's something else going on. Do you really not know yet? There's not a really good idea behind it. We, we've, unless, unless, if there were very big differences in cognitive ability, then you might say, well, it's that. But we're not finding those. So there's something else going on. There's also differences in terms of testosterone and estrogen have effects in the brain as they do in the body. 
Interestingly, it's not because men have got brains that are being driven by loads and loads of testosterone and women have got brains that are being driven by loads and loads of oestrogen because actually where they have this, they are sex hormones, they have effects on sexual aspects of the body. Um, where testosterone has these effects in the brain, it's turned into an oestrogen. So actually, post-menopause, a male brain will contain more oestrogen <laughs> than a female brain <laughs> because the female hasn't got, has got less oestrogen all around and has less testosterone to start with, and that's also gone down. So there are, there's something weird going on there. Again, we don't fully understand that, but there are, you can pick up things like, for example, testosterone in male brains seems to enhance the effects of dopamine, and dopamine is a very interesting neurotransmitter well, it's very important in the control of action. It's also very associated with, you know, that really nice feeling when you win something, you get something. And actually that sort of dopamine hit is behind a lot of social contact. It's behind a lot of addictive behaviours. And it seems to be greater in men than in women because testosterone seems to amplify this. So there you get some interesting interactions there as well. But it's rather interesting that we've got this far in civilization, and we don't actually know the answer. <laughs> it's fascinating. It is extraordinary. Is there anything we can do to help make new knowledge really stick? I mean, writing down notes, getting a good night's sleep, the time spent learning? Well, definitely, and it sounds silly, but actually learning something the day before you might get tested on it is better than learning it on the same day. That's me. <laughs> it's because when we sleep, our brain consolidates all the things that have happened to us that day. And it's actually, that's when it's incorporating a lot of that into our longer term memories. One suggestion is that what happens when we dream is you're experiencing this kind of downloading from the hippocampus into the rest of the brain of this information. But it's not just a sort of storage thing. Your brain is just shunting it off and filing it. It's incorporating it into what you already know about the world. And actually, that's really the key to learning about things Learning about something in isolation will never be as good as thinking about its meaning and its relationship to other things that you know. So that happens when you sleep, and that means that you actually know things better the next day than you did the day you learned them. When you're actually learning them, thinking about meaning really helps. So that's why making notes is good. It's better than just reading. But when you make the notes, it's also useful to then go back and synthesise across those notes. Keep thinking about the meaning of what you're trying to learn. Don't just think about, like, rote. That will make a huge difference. Now, there's something really intriguing in your book about London taxi drivers. Now, these people have to complete the knowledge, which is a very complicated mm. memory test of streets and places all across London, which is a massive place. Neuroscientists have learned that this intense training actually makes a region of the brain larger. Yes. Well, that's extraordinary. It is absolutely amazing. It sounds almost unbelievable. And I, it's, a lot of this is the work was started by my colleague Eleanor Maguire at UCL. And she she was interested in taxi drivers, which people thought at first was just ridiculous. Like She won a, an Ig Nobel Prize because people, people in America <laughs> was just like, that's fundamentally ridiculous. But her point was they do this absolutely unprecedented spatial learning. There isn't really anything else like mm. it in the world. And they do it as adults. One of the problems with studying the effects of learning on the brain is that often people start really young and then you can't pull out the difference. Is this mm -hmm. genetic? Is it what, what, what other things influence them? So here we've got people who are starting when they're young adults. The brain's pretty much almost an adult-sized brain there. So they, you're probably going to be able to just look just at the effects of learning. And of course, also some people pass and some people fail the knowledge. 
the layout of London is called the knowledge. So she scanned taxi drivers and she found that they had larger hippocampi. Mm. We have two hippocampuses. It's called the hippocampus because it looks a little bit like a seahorse and it runs down the middle of our temporal lobes. And the temporal lobes, that's the bits of the brain that kind of come down over your ears. And you've got two of them. They're sitting curled around inside the temporal lobe and they are very important for spatial navigation. So when you are thinking about how you would get from here to home, you're using your hippocampus. When you are actually moving through that space to get home, you're using your hippocampus. Even when you're moving around a room, your hippocampus is working out where you are in that room. So it's very, very important for spatial location and spatial navigation. And what she found was that taxi drivers who'd done the knowledge had larger hippocampi than people of the same age and sort of educational experience. So that really suggested that there was something different about the learning that they'd experienced that had changed their brain. And you could say, well, maybe it's just something people who are good at that anyway go into that job. So she took people who were training on the knowledge and she scanned them before they did the knowledge. And then they went off for a few years, did it, and she scanned them again. And what she found was you only see this increase in people who pass the knowledge. My mother was a pianist, a really good one. And uh, she taught me the piano and eventually sent me off to Winchester Cathedral Choir School where I became a chorister. And my brain was subject to enormous input of Mm. music. What will that have done to my brain? It seems to have a lot of impact, learning to play a musical instrument. You can sort of break it down into different bits. Part of it is a sensory motor task, actually learning that the physical fine motor control you have to learn to read the music Mm. and to actually learn to map between those two things you also learn how to hear differently so your brain will have been specialized you will hear something in somebody playing a piano that somebody who can't play a piano won't hear you'll hear something to do the technique to do the instrument Mm. that you what they're actually doing you, you will hear that differently And even down to, you will have a finer grained ability to pick up on frequency differences in sound. You're better at hearing if something is a bit mistuned or not. So a lot of different levels, learning to play a musical instrument has big influences on your brain. And that's before we've even got to things like playing with other people and performing and all the other things you might then do with that skill. But does it take up space that might otherwise be devoted to something more... I don't know, educative. <laughs> well, it's, I think you're allowed to call it educative. And I think, but one of the things that's really interesting is because you, your brain is remodelling all the time, your brain will have very, very swiftly started remodelling when you were learning these skills. And that capacity, as far as we can see, is unlimited. You don't fill up your brain and be unable to form any new connections. What about crosswords, puzzles? Um, people say it's great for brain health and the rest of it. But do those sort of things make any difference? Um, You see a lot of stuff marketed in this way. And it's certainly not bad for your brain. I would never say don't do it. But what all the evidence is that learning to get good at crosswords, or certainly word puzzles, makes you good at doing word puzzles. It doesn't necessarily translate to other things. Um, I think crosswords, particularly cryptic crosswords, might be a slightly more complex case because they are slightly more hard to do but it's also I mean like I say I wouldn't say don't do it but I wouldn't just focus on one thing don't just go in hard on word puzzles and ignore talking to people or playing games with people because actually 
there are things that we know are really good for your brain and they are more along the lines of doing exactly those same sorts of puzzles, but doing them with other people, doing things that are social. That we know is good for your brain. What about physical exercise? Literally the best thing that you can do for your brain. Really? It's uh, partly because, well, in a very large part, because your remember I said your brain is really expensive in terms of how your body's using energy. A lot of that energy is being used up by your brain. And that energy is getting to your brain through your blood supply. So anything that you can do to improve your cardiovascular health, that's the health of your heart and your blood vessels, will be beneficial for your brain because your brain is absolutely dependent on your cardiovascular system to get the oxygen that it needs, to get the energy, to take away waste products. Your brain is absolutely dependent on that. So unfortunately, you find things like women are often somewhat less likely than men to recover well from a stroke and it's often because they're less fit really because we offer fewer opportunities or it's just socially less acceptable for older women to exercise and it has a real impact so it's it's having a really really beneficial effect by doing things to improve your cardiovascular health and also to actually keep moving your body to you know try doing new things with your body it's a very good measure of, of brain health is how good you are at standing on one leg. <laughs> it sounds silly, but actually there's a huge amount of motor control involved in that. So practice doing it. Do five minutes a day standing on one leg. You don't have to close your eyes, lean against a wall, doesn't matter, but stand, you know, that it sounds silly, but again... But why? Un- why does it affect the brain? Partially because you start to lose some neurons as you get older and you do lose motor neurons that control action. So things that you can do to keep those active... Mm would have some, the idea is that we have some beneficial effect. And finally, do you remember I said you're born with all the brain cells you'll ever have, with one exception? There is some evidence from rats, but it's interesting because it hasn't been seen before that exercise leads to the growth of new brain cells, certainly in that hippocampus that you use for spatial navigation. So this important exception of you're born with all the brain cells you'll ever have, with one exception, and that exception is exercise-based. One of the worst things that can happen to our brains is to be lonely. I mean, Mm. why is socialising so important to us? Because we're social mammals. We're apes. And with the exception of, I think, some orangutans, apes are all intensely social. They live in social groups. And you find in baboons that, for example, that the health and the length of your life are really determined by the social connections you have in your social group. And the same is true for us. How long you live how well you are mentally, how healthy you are, all correlate with the network you have with other people and the strength of the connections you have within that. And that's what our brains want to be in. So it's often framed as loneliness. So people will say, you know, science has shown that loneliness is one of the worst things you can do for your brain. And it's because it's not that loneliness is bad, it's that social contact is good. The opposite of loneliness is in fact where your brain wants to be. And it's why if you want to do brain exercises that will feel like they're really helping you, do things that are social, do pub quizzes, play card games with people, things that will not only be something to think about, but actually something you do in a group. Then in thinking about the pandemic, I mean, isolation, stress, Mm. living through the pandemic, were they damaging to the brain? Well, unfortunately, yes. My partner's also a a brain scientist. And at the start of this, we were saying we really should be scanning everybody if this is remotely possible. Really? You will never see such a thing again, hopefully, particularly the lockdown. So people were suddenly going into these 
tiny, very, very reduced social context. And some of us were lucky enough to be in lockdown with family. Many people were completely on their own. And because our brains adapt, because humans are able to adapt to difficult situations due to our brains being able to sort of cope and change, we sometimes don't notice how much we have been changed by things. And I think there are studies showing that you can take very introverted people and make them more extrovert by just making them do extrovert things. And I think we might need to do a little bit of that now. It's going to be quite easy to not push back out, you know, to sort of stay in a more reduced world because that's what we've got used to. But it will be much better for us to be getting back out, to be talking to people, to be doing things. Well, let's stay with social interactions for a minute. You're especially interested in laughter. Uh, I've noticed it even in speaking to you. (laughs) Is it the glue that can bind us? It's certainly one of the most important things that we do to bond with each other. It's a very interesting behaviour, laughter. It's something that often is assumed to be something only humans do, but in fact it's a very ancient mammal behaviour. Other apes like us laugh, but even rats seem to laugh, and there's probably a lot more laughter behaviour out there in other mammals. But interestingly, whenever you look at other mammals, the main role for laughter is social bonding and play. And, of course, that's true for us as well. We very rarely laugh on our own. We do, but it's you're 30, three zero times more likely to laugh if there's someone else with you. And if you know that person and you like that person, you'll laugh more. It's something that we associate with humour and comedy. And we do laugh at humour and comedy, but actually most human laughter behaviour, just like with other mammals, is actually about social bonding and sort of showing that you know somebody and you like them and you're part of the same group as them, or perhaps trying to make a bond with someone you haven't met before. So it's actually a a very interesting nuanced behaviour in adult humans because if you watch humans laughing, they laugh a great deal, but they're mostly still not laughing at jokes. They laugh at comments and conversations and sort of statements because you're showing you're doing a lot of sort of showing how much you know someone and like them and, and agree with them and understand them when you laugh as well as laughing at things that seem to be funny so it's a it's a very very complex very interesting human social behavior which sits because most laughter happens in conversations with people that's what we do when we're with other people it's sort of interleaved with human language which is unique as far as we can see in the world for complexity and human speech which is the most complex sound in nature we drop into this old mammal behavior to do a lot of the emotional lifting we're recording this podcast in january and it's a month when quite a few people decide to give up alcohol what advantages will that have for their brains i mean i would say at the start yes give it a go definitely because alcohol's a it's a tricky one it's actually up there with caffeine it's one of the most kind of most human cultures have discovered it and sort of enjoyed it and it is a great drug and it it makes people feel warmer because you get this endorphin release you get a bit of a dopamine hit you feel more relaxed there are all these big changes in your brain but it also does things like increase cortisol and that's a stress hormone and that's why if you've had a drink you'll very often feel more sleepy because this, all these neurotransmitters associated with inhibiting your brain get triggered. So you'll want to go to bed earlier, but you'll wake up earlier and probably not feeling great because you get this great big cortisol rebound. So it, it has funny effects. And also... Might you want to hit somebody? <laughs> well, a lot of the important stuff that happens in your brain is actually to do with inhibiting behaviour. And alcohol removes a lot of those, ah. which is why people do often become more disinhibited. I read a lovely description in a book... Is it by Sarah Hepler? said, alcohol introduces you to a different, more interesting version of yourself <laughs> because of this disinhibition. But of course, 
that then leads to lots of other behavioural issues. There are reasons why those inhibitions are there in the first place. There are important things to do. And also critically, it can do a couple of really seriously bad things to your brain. So if you seriously abuse alcohol, it starts to affect how your stomach works and that can affect how you absorb B vitamins and that can cause a very specific form of amnesia. That means that people simply are unable to encode new memories after the onset of this. And it's Wernicke-Korsakoff's amnesia and it's horrible. And it's associated with chronic alcoholism and it's it's absolutely dreadful. Mm. People just mm. don't know how old they are or what's going on and don't really remember anything since they were, say, 25. But more commonly, because it's not great for your cardiovascular system, it affects your brain secondhand because your brain is suffering as a result of the alcohol affecting how your heart and your blood vessels work. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Professor Sophie Scott, you've been researching the brain since the 1990s. But the brain is complex. There's still much we don't know. Did you ever feel daunted as a student or was it an irresistible challenge? It is daunting. It's overwhelming when you start to think about the complexity of the brain, just the sheer size of it and the way that it continuously develops and the way that it communicates within itself, both chemically and electrically. You sort of think, where where do you start? What do you do? And I think the thing that I've been very lucky to be around for is that in the 1990s we got access to brain imaging that let us start to take photographs of the brain in action at a really crude level looking at millions of synapses at a time synapses are just the junction between how brain cells talk to each other but taking snapshots of the brain in action but also to start to get really good anatomical pictures of the brain because both of these things were very, very hard to do up until the 90s. How was that achieved? Basically, mostly from quantum physics. Quantum physics tells you about how electrons behave in the shells of different sorts of molecules. And what this led to was in a physics department in Nottingham, starting, I think, in the 70s, these people started putting material into very strong magnetic fields and then looking at what happened to the electrons in some of the molecules. But that's such an extraordinary discovery. They won the Nobel Prize for this. It it absolutely revolutionised medical imaging. You started to get pictures of the body that we simply hadn't had before. It was incredible. But particularly of the brain, because the brain is 
sort of soft and it's more like a blancmange than it is a sort of piece of plastic. So actually investigating the structure of the brain post-mortem is hard to do. So this let us take pictures of the anatomy of the brain and then it turns out that that same technique can be used to take these snapshots of the brain in action because when your brain is doing more work, at any point right now, you're using your brain to listen to me. As soon as you started doing that, your brain sends more blood to the parts of your brain that are used for perceiving sound. And this is changes in what's called regional cerebral blood flow. But that leads to a change in the ratio of oxygenated and deoxygenated blood in that bit of your brain. And they have different paramagnetic qualities, which means we can use this same technique to look at that. It's called magnetic resonance imaging, and it's opened up many different aspects of medicine, but it lets us take amazingly detailed pictures of the brain, and it lets us look at the brain in action. There are other ways of looking at brain activation, but those are the things that have really changed the field, I think. But all that's extraordinarily recent then. It is, it is. It's as if we're looking at astronomy when people had just started to get good telescopes. Gosh. That's my analogy. So it is, it's a science really at the start, I think. Did you ever consider medicine, or was it always that you were drawn to this sort of research? I thought about medicine when I was at school because I, th I liked science, I liked chemistry, I liked physics, I liked biology. And I thought that what you did with those was you did medicine. I didn't really know you could do science for a living. And it was a bit of a revelation to discover, A, that you could study human behaviour and brains using these techniques, but also that actually also you could be a research scientist. So that was what really made me excited was the chance to get to do that. Now, you look at brains in a scanner. But this technology is relatively new. And mm. I'm wondering whether you think we've only scratched the surface. Are you excited about the future of neuroscience? I'm really excited about the future of neuroscience. You're about to say that because <laughs> you're an academic. <laughs> <laughs> Please give us lots of money. No, I, th I think the progress of this field is extraordinary. And we have made, you know, it's not as if we've only just started studying the brain. People have been studying the brain for centuries and we've made many important steps you know, we discovered that the brain communicated electronically. There was amazing work from Canada 100 years ago showing that if you stimulate the surface of the brain, you could get people hearing or doing different things. You could really pick out the sort of localization of function in the brain this way. And then for several centuries, we've had people studying what happens in the brain when things go wrong, when someone's had a stroke or they have a tumor, and you map between what the changes in their brain are and then the changes in their cognitive or their emotional abilities. Then in the 1990s, we got this techniques that let us look at healthy brains. So we weren't looking at somebody having surgery or we weren't looking at somebody who'd had a stroke, although we still continue doing that research to great effect, not least because you want to be able to help the patients. But to actually be able to look at neurotypical healthy brains that are being scanned while people are doing something very interesting but quite dull like reading or listening to speech, that started to just massively change how we could ask questions about the brain. And we've only really been able to do that since the 1990s. And our techniques at first were crude and they remain very crude. Confronted with the complexity of the human mm. brain, they were going to stay crude for a while. But they're improving very quickly. So I think it's uh, one of the things that I'm very glad about in my career is that I was around and this was starting and I was able to get involved in it because it's been very interesting in terms of being able to ask scientific questions about the brain, but also simply seeing a field develop. Now, if listeners have been paying close attention to this podcast, have they heard enough to change their brains or do they need to dive into your new book? Well, I would say, obviously, mm -hmm. buy the book and mm. get it from the library and make lots of notes. But are we more receptive to what we're hearing rather than what we read? 
Is it quicker to the brain? You'll hear a lot of talk about people having different kinds of learning. I'm a visual learner, I'm a more auditory learner. And that hasn't really panned out. You don't find systematic differences for people that really do seem to map onto big differences in how you engage with information. That being said, my partner always used to say that if only our degree information had all been shared on Radio 4, he would have learned it a lot better. But it's one of the reasons I prefer to read a book than to read something on a screen is because I like to make notes when I'm reading or underline something on the page. I want a physical relationship with that page. There are just differences in how the things that different kinds of interactions with books can afford you. Being able to listen to an audio book means that you can listen when you are walking or when you are driving, and that does give you time. So I would say whatever feels most comfortable for you. But actually anything that you remember from this podcast is because your brain has changed. Well, Professor Sophie Scott, I've enjoyed every minute of this discussion. It was good fun, wasn't it? That was great, thank you. That was Professor Sophie Scott, whose passion for her subject is infectious. Sophie's book is called The Brain, Ten Things You Should Know, and you can find a link to that and her own Neuromantics podcast in the episode description. I'm Jon Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. If you'd like to get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk. I'll be sharing new episodes every Tuesday, so please follow us on your platform of choice, and I hope to meet you back here very soon. Goodbye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.